0: Good morning. If you would, um, open up your scriptures to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, 1 and 2. Let me read uh, the first two verses of uh, chapter 2. My little children, I am writing these sayings to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin... We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is a propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Let's pray. Daring Father God, Lord, I pray uh, this morning as we tackle a tricky text, Lord, that you're with me, Lord, that my words that I am speaking, Lord, come from your word, Lord, that, uh, that what you would have for us this morning, Lord, that that would be heard. I pray for your spirit, Lord, to fill this room, to be, be in me as I speak, Lord, but to be in each one of us, Lord, as as we go through your word, Lord. So guard our lips, guard my lips, Lord, and be with us this morning. In your son's name, amen. I've never uh, personally really had a a, a life verse. To be honest, I've never quite understood what that means uh, or or meant. So when people ask, hey, Nathan, what's your life verse? I usually tell them that it's Mark 14, 51 through 52. You guys can make note of that. Look it up later. It's a joke, just so you know. Um, You guys are going to look it up and be like, what type of pastor is is he? Uh, Just to be honest, there's just so many different verses in Scripture. I couldn't just pick one. But these two verses I've been studying these last two weeks, John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, and these two verses have brought just so much joy in my life, so much assurance as a Christian, that I know my heart is going to come back to these two verses over and over and over again. I haven't found myself having these two verses memorized without even trying. It, just, it was almost like God wrote these two verses on my heart. I'm not really great at memorizing scripture. I'm not one of those people that it, it's easy to do that. But these two verses were just just on my heart. And so the sermon today is really going to just be on these two verses. And I know what you're thinking. We're never going to get through First John. It took us two years to get through Luke. It's going to take us five to get through First John. I hope not we're gonna we're gonna hopefully get through it quickly um but i the more I dug in these two verses, the deeper I got in and I wanted to spend some time this morning just on these two verses and so I have three points that I wanna go over. the first one is Jesus our advocate, second point is Jesus our propitiation, and the third point is jesus our our message to the nations. Jesus, our advocate, Jesus, our, prop- our propitiation, and Jesus, our message to the nation. So let's start with Jesus, our advocate. Look at, look at verse 1, chapter 2, verse 1. It starts off by saying, my little children, my little children. There's a change in mood. If you've been reading through 1 John, and I, and I hope you have during this season, you, you see very quickly that there's this change of mood. John is specifically addressing those in the church, Right, those that he loves. He calls them my little children. In verse 1, there's this hint of, of sarcasm. I, I hope you guys have seen. As, as John is starting off addressing the false teachers that are plaguing the church and the false teaching, he, there's this hint of sarcasm even with the hypothetical situations that he's, he's, he's setting up saying, well, if we say, if we say, but here in verse 2, that sarcasm is gone. He's addressing those in the church that are truly saved. Those he he loves. And he is addressing them in a very pastoral and and even a fatherly way. My little children. Look at verse 1. My little children, I am writing these sayings to you so that you may not sin. The first thing that John wants to get across to these these, this church that he loves, these people that he loves, he wants to be clear, he's not writing these things so that the church may sin. Right? He's talking about the grace of God. Chapter 1, verse 9 says, if we confess our sins, and, the, and this is talking to, to those that are Christians, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. In other words, if you're a Christian and you sin, God will forgive you. He will forgive you. But John is not saying this so that you may sin. Right? The opposite is true. Look at verse 1. He's saying, I write these sayings. I am writing these sayings to you so that you may not sin. In other words, John is saying, I don't want you to sin. Why? Because I want to be clear. Sin destroys Listen, there is grace, and, and don't get me wrong, but sin destroys. Sin brings destruction, pain, suffering, misery. Now, God didn't make all these, these arbitrary rules just because he wanted to make a bunch of rules. He made, made, made laws and said, follow these, because, because if you don't, it'll bring destruction. Sin de- brings destruction, pain, suffering. Sin destroys relationships. Sin destroys fellowship with God. And even though there's grace, John wants to be clear that that sin destroys. So he's pleading with those that he loves, stay away from sin. Chapter 2, verse 1, my little children, I am writing these sayings to you so that you may not sin. But, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father Jesus Christ, the righteous. Jesus is our advocate. Our advocate. It's an interesting word in Greek. It's parakletos in Greek. It's a word that we usually associate. That word is usually associated with, with the Holy Spirit. Right? It's translated many often helper. Right? For example, uh, the Gospel of John 16, verse 7 says this, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away, for for if I do not go away, the Helper, that's that the Paracletos, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. It's interesting here that John calls Jesus the Paracletos, the Helper, or better translated, I think it's a great translation, the Advocate, the Advocate. But if anyone does sin. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. But well, what does this mean? This word parakletos is actually a, a kind of a tricky word in Greek um, to translate. Uh, it's two words. It's a, it's a combination of two words, para and kletos. Para just means to come alongside. It's where we get the word parallel from. You have two lines that parallel each other. They, they're alongside each other. So the, the word we get a parable from there's stories that parallel real life right that come alongside real life so para means come alongside and kletos means means to call or to direct so the definition of this word is is one who may be called upon to provide help or assistance a helper it's it's a pretty good translation that's why it's translated helper comforter um, counselor exhorter encourager but it also can mean One who lends his voice in our defense. Or one who speaks up on our behalf. That's why advocate is a good translation. Really, the idea of advocate, and and don't get me wrong when I say this, it's kind of like a defense attorney. If you take all the the bad stuff that we have when we hear attorney or lawyer, kind of put that to the side. What a defense attorney does... Right? It's a person that speaks up to defend someone else. That's kind of what that word means. A person that, that speaks up that defends someone else, a defense attorney. Jesus, in other words, is our advocate. He's our defense attorney. So what does that mean? Well, first of all, if Jesus is speaking on our behalf like a defense attorney, it means there's a courtroom somewhere. There's a bar of justice somewhere. Look at what it says in in verse 1 and 2. It's 1 John uh, 2, verse 1 and 2. It says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate, the paracletos, a defense attorney with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So our advocate, our defense attorney is Jesus. That means the judge is the Father. This is what, what Timothy Keller talks says about Jesus being our advocate. I, I love how he phrases this, so let me just read it. Now let's think about what an advocate does for you. If you're accused of a crime and you go to court, what does your defense attorney do? There is a sense in which, in court, your defense attorney is you. In court, you, you disappear into your advocate. If you stutter but your lawyer is eloquent, what do you look like in court? Eloquent. If you're ignorant, but your lawyer is brilliant, what do you look like in court? Brilliant. Jesus is our advocate. Jesus is interceding for us with the Father. He speaks on our behalf. And this is why uh, when I as a Christian sin... I'm not condemned. When I am as a Christian sin, I'm not unsaved somehow because Jesus is our advocate and he, he's arguing with the Father for us. Well, what's his argument? Well, look at look at 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. This is really interesting. It's a word that just seems misplaced in this verse. 1 John 1, verse 9 says this, if we confess our sins... He's talking about Christians. If we Christians confess our sins, we expose our sins to the light, remember? If we confess our sins, he, this is God, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. It's unusual. It's a weird word here, that word just. Faithful and just to forgive us. God's justice is usually connected to his wrath. It's his mercy that's connected to forgiveness. So you would expect John to say, if we confess our sins to God, he's a merciful God, and therefore he'll forgive us. But he doesn't say that. He says he's just to forgive us. It's interesting. John here connects God's justice to God's forgiveness. In other words, this is what John is saying. To not forgive us. let me be clear. I'm talking to you Christians out there. If you're not a Christian this morning, this does not apply to you. Put your faith in Jesus. Put your faith in Jesus. For you that is a Christian this morning. For me and you that are Christians this morning. Listen, to not forgive us would make God unjust. That's what John is saying. To not forgive us would make God unjust. I believe John... Has this argument? But I believe this is the argument that Jesus has. Let me just—I wrote this up, and again, this is. Let me just say that this is not scripture what I wrote here, but I wrote up just an argument, something that that Jesus may be saying on our behalf. So just listen to this. Right, this may be the argument, or it sounds something like this: Father, Jesus advocating for us. Father, my people have sinned, and I just want to say, God is honest. Jesus is honest when we sin. He doesn't try to cover up. He doesn't try to hide it. He exposes it to the light. Father, my people have sinned, and the law demands that the wages of sin is death. But I have paid for those sins. See, here is my blood, the token of my death. On the cross, I have paid the penalty for those sins completely. Now, if anyone were were to exact two payments for the same sin, it would be unjust. And so I'm asking for mercy. I'm asking for justice. Isn't that amazing? Again, that's not Scripture. Right? But I get that from Scripture. Isn't it amazing that once you are saved, God's justice becomes beautiful? Before the cross, before salvation, God's justice is scary. It's scary. We as sinners, God's a just and holy God. It's scary. But after the cross, after salvation, when we put our faith in Christ, God's justice becomes our security, our comfort. Because after salvation, it would be unjust for God to punish you. It would be unjust for God to punish you. And this leads into our second point this morning. Jesus is our propitiation. Propitiation. Try to say that word a few times fast. I practiced it before I got up here this morning. I hope I'm saying it right. Look at verse 2. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Propitiation, obviously, is is not a common word, I'm sure, unless you read this verse this morning, that you didn't say that word as you were getting ready for church. Because it's mostly a biblical or theological word. And actually, it's only used four times in the New Testament. It's not that common of a New Testament word. The Greek word is hilasmos, which literally means appeasement or, or satisfaction. The word, we have to use the Greek culture to know what that word means. So we look at Greek literature to go, okay, what would that word mean to the audience that John is writing to? And in Greek literature, this word Uh, Indicates the removal of a God's wrath by an acceptable offering. In other words, words, a God's wrath is poured out on something. His wrath, the God's wrath is satisfied or appeased by whatever his wrath is getting poured out on. Propitiation was an atonement. A way to, to appease or satisfy the wrath of a God whose standards had been violated. Biblically, it alludes to the sacrifice offered for atonement in the Old Testament. Right? I mean, think about that. The, the, the lamb in the Old Testament, that was sacrifice. Right? That's a symbol of God's wrath being poured out on that lamb. I mean, God's holy, just wrath is poured out on that lamb. So his wrath would be satisfied because the death of the ram took the place of the sinner. And we know that, that no ram in the Old Testament actually satisfied God's wrath. It all pointed to Jesus, who was the true Lamb of God. It was a symbol pointed forward. Therefore, when John says that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins, he means that our sins have been atoned. Right, Its penalties have been removed, in other words. And God's wrath is likewise propitiated, that is, turned away, satisfied, appeased, done, over, finished. Christ's sacrificial death on the cross satisfied God's demands of justice, thus appeasing his holy wrath against the believer's sins. The Bible is clear that God is a holy just god he's a holy just god i want to say for how scary that is that god is a holy just god for 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 humanity that is sinners we wouldn't want the opposite we wouldn't want an unjust god that would be unbearable god is a holy just god but that means he is wrathful towards sin he is wrathful towards sin and god's wrath his holy just wrath will be satisfied in one of two ways Either, God's wrath will be satisfied on the unrepented sinner in eternity of hell. That's 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction, away from the presence of the Lord, from the glory of his might. Or, that's one way, or, for all those who have repented and believed in Jesus... God's wrath is satisfied by the punishment poured out on Christ himself on the cross. And that's what's talked about here in in 1 John 2, 2. He is the propitiation for our sins. Listen, every single sin will be paid for one way or the other. Every single sin. God's wrath will be satisfied, his holy, just wrath. But listen, I think verse 2 brings clarity to verse 1. Verse 2 brings clarity to verse 1. Look at verse 1 again. But if anyone does sin, right? 1 John chapter 2 verse 1, but if anyone does sin, for this is for the Christian, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. Right? The advocate is in heaven, reminding the Father of his justice. He's saying these people's sins have been atoned for. These people's sins have been paid for. I am the propitiation for their sins. I have satisfied your just wrath. Therefore, it will be unjust to make them to pay for their sins now. Jesus is appealing to God's justice. Just like chapter 1 verse 9, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Listen, God's justice is on the line. God's holiness is on the line. How much assurance does that bring to you as a Christian? God's not going going to violate his justice and his holiness. If you have truly put your faith in Christ, listen, your sins have been paid for and Jesus is interceding for you right now with the Father saying it would be unjust, unjust to make them pay for the sins again. That's beautiful. This is why I love these two verses. This is why my heart is going to go back to these two verses over and over again because I am a sinner and I'm reminded that I have an advocate in heaven continuously advocating for me beautiful one commentator said this christ can never make his case for the saints if you um as their divine attorney or sorry defense attorney divine defense attorney if he were not their propitiator who completely turned away god's wrath from sinners to himself thus removing all their guilt and condemnation is that beautiful Look at verse 2 again. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. What does John mean here when he says for the sins of the whole world? Well, I'm going to be honest this morning. This is a super tricky and controversial passage right here. And so I'm asking you, as a congregation, as a church, to have grace. i Have grace for me as I try to explain this the best I can, as I'll have grace for you. I pray that we have grace for each other. I've seen I've, seen, I've heard of churches splitting over passages like this. And especially as a lot of you are in sermon-based small groups right now, listen, I want to be clear. This, this verse should not cause you to break fellowship with people you love. I want to be honest about another thing too. I was tempted, knowing this, this passage is coming, this verse is coming, I was tempted as a pastor to kind of gloss over this verse, to sidestep it, to read it and just keep going. But my calling is to preach the whole counsel of God. So I'm not sidestepping this controversial subject. We're going to hit it right in its head. And the reason I, I want to do that, it's not because I want to push my theological agenda this morning. It's because I think there's an important imperative we need to hear as a church at the other end of this understanding. So stick with me this morning. I want to start by explaining why this is a tricky verse. First, when you hear sins of the whole world, at face value, sins of the whole world sounds like every single person that has ever lived. When you read that, that's what it sounds like, just in English, going through this text. Every single person that's ever lived. In other words, it sounds like this. John is saying something like, Jesus is the propitiation for our sins, and not our sins only, but also for the sins of every single person that has ever lived. There's some major problems, if that's what he's saying. If John is saying that, that everyone's sins have been paid for, John here is promoting universalism. In other words, everyone's sins have been paid for, meaning everyone's sins have been forgiven, meaning everyone is saved, meaning everyone is going to heaven no matter what, no matter what you believe or do. Obviously, this is not what John is saying because that's a heresy. The Bible is very clear that there is people going to hell, very clear. John himself, right? First John itself is showing the church that there are some that are saved and some that aren't. So that can't be what John is is saying. He can't be promoting universalism. Because of this, there's some people that have tried to explain this passage by saying, everyone's sins have been paid for, but they don't get the saving benefits of that unless they put their faith in, in God, in Christ. In other words, and I worded this this way on purpose, they're saying something like this, your sins have been paid for, but if you don't put your faith in God, you will go to hell to pay for those sins. There's another big problem with that. Because that would make God unjust. To make someone pay a penalty that has already been paid for is unjust. It's unjust to exact two payments for the same sins. That's, that's the argument that we made earlier. That's why it says that, that in, in John 1, nine that God is faithful and just to forgive you your sins as Christians. So we have a dilemma here. Either John is promoting universalism, or God is unjust because he would be sending people to hell whose sins have already been paid for. But that's only a dilemma if the phrase, the whole world, means every single person. It's only a dilemma if that phrase, the whole world, means every single person. Here's my position and, and I want to warn you before I try to explain this and back up my position. We're going to get technical and deep. Probably thinking we're already deep. Well, I'm going to do my best to explain this. And it's probably, uh, we won't get into it. It's gonna, we're going to get technical and deep. When John says the whole world, he's not talking about every single person. But instead, the whole world is a generic expression that refers to humanity throughout the earth. In other words, humans throughout the whole world. Can I back this up? Well, turn with me to 1 John 5.18. Because, thankfully, we can bring some clarity to what he means by the whole world, because that phrase isn't the only time he uses it. It's not only used in chapter 2, it's used in chapter 5, that phrase, the whole world. So I want to be clear of the question I'm trying to answer this morning. What does John mean when he uses the phrase, the whole world? Does he mean every single person, every single person that has ever lived, that is living, that has ever lived? Or an expression that refers to humanity throughout the earth? Which one is he talking about? Well, look at verse 18 in chapter 5. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who has born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. This is very clear. John is saying that those that are saved, right, Christians, are not under the power of the evil one. That God protects them. Verse 19, we know that we are from God because, because we're not under the power of the evil one. Remember, that's the context here. We know that we are from God and the whole world lies under the power of the evil one. In other words, that John's making a distinction here. He's saying that those that are saved, that are protected by God, that aren't under the power of the evil one, and the whole world is under the power of the evil one. It's obvious in this passage that the whole world doesn't refer to every single person because there are those that are saved that aren't under the power of the evil one. John is making a distinction between Christians and everyone else. The best understanding of how John uses the phrase, the whole world, then, is a generic expression that refers to humanity throughout the earth. In other words, John is not saying every single person lies under the power of the evil one. Because there's Christians that don't throughout the earth. What John is saying is that humanity throughout earth lies under the power of the evil one. Now let's take that understanding and go back to John chapter 2 verse 2. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Here's what I think John is saying. He is the propitiation for our sins, but not for ours only, but also for the sins of humanity, right? Humans throughout the earth, in other words, the whole world. In other words, Jesus isn't the propitiation just for the Jews, he isn't the propitiation just for Israel. He isn't ju- the propitiation just for the church that is saved right now, right? In other words, the church he's talking to. There's people throughout the world that we need to get this gospel message to, right? Humans throughout the world. This is what one theologian says: to be faithful to, to the truth, or true revelation, or sorry, to be faithful to the truth revealed in Scripture. The whole world must be comprehended as a generic expression that refers to humanity throughout the earth, not, not, but not necessarily to every individual. For John, the word world—listen, this is important— for John, the word world simply identifies the earthly realm of mankind to which God directs his reconciling love and the message of the gospel. Does this definition fit other places where John uses world? Right, the Greek word for world is cosmos. I believe it does. And there's at least three different places in the gospel of John where the word cosmos is used. I just want to look at two of them real quick. The first one is uh, John 1, 29. It says this, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. This is John the Baptist speaking. He he sees Jesus and says, Behold the Lamb of God. And this fits too. That's why Jesus is called the Lamb, because he's the propitiation of God's wrath. The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Does John the Baptist mean every single person in the world? Well, no. Matthew 3.10 quotes John the Baptist saying, Even now the axe is laid at the root of the tree. Every tree that, that, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. John the Baptist, when he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world is not saying every single person. He's saying those that believe throughout the world. Let me see if I can, can show you one more place. Can you think of another passage in the Gospel of John that's really famous that has the word world in it? I didn't hear it. I just hear laughing. John 3, 16. John three sixteen. For God so loves the world. Well, how does God love the world? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish and have eternal life. How does God love the world? That whoever believes in him should not perish and have eternal life. In other words, there's a qualification. Those that believe have eternal life. In other words, those who have believed, those who have faith, their sins are forgiven. Those that do not have faith, right? Those that do not believe, their sins are not forgiven. So belief or faith separates those that are saved from those that aren't saved. But listen, before you get proud of your belief, proud of your own faith, that's what the Gnostics did. I think about this. This is who John's arguing against. These Gnostics that were proud because they had this secret knowledge that brought salvation. They figured it out and you didn't. Therefore, you guys are the have-nots. They were proud that they figured it out somehow. Before we get into that same trap, listen to what Paul says in, in about faith in uh, Ephesians 2.8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not even your own doing. It's a gift of God. In other words, it's grace upon grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. Even your faith is a gift by God. Verse 9, not a result of works. In other words, not, not, not a result of something you did. God gets all the glory. Not the results of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, not the other way around what Charles Spurgeon says. Great believer. I, I just, as I'm st- thinking through this and studying it this week, I go through a Spurgeon devotional each morning. And this is one of the devotions we had one morning. Great believer, thou wouldst have been a great sinner if God had not made thee to differ. Oh, oh, thou who art bold for truth. Thou would have been would have been bold for error if grace had not laid a hold of you. Therefore, be not proud. Though thou has a great estate, a wide domain of grace, thou hadest not an ounce a single thing to call thy own except sin and misery. Listen, in Christianity, true Christianity, there isn't haves and have-nots. There are those that have been blessed by God's grace and those that need to hear about God's grace. Those that are our mission field. It leaves me to my third point this morning. Jesus, our message to the nations. Jesus, our message to the nations. Look at 1 John 2, 2. Again, if you're not there, turn back. So if, if the whole world doesn't mean every single person, what does it mean? That's a question we should be asking. What does it mean? Verse two. Look at it. He is a propitiation for our sins, and not for ours, or not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Why does John add this last part? I mean, just think about this. He didn't have to. Right, he didn't have to add the last part. The thought would make pl- complete sense if he just said he is a propitiation for our sins. Right. That makes the point. But he adds, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Why does he add this? Well, here's what I think. He's reminding the church of its calling. He's reminding the church of its calling. He's, he's, he's pointing them to the Great Commission. The Great Commission is in Matthew 28, verse 18. It says this, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Let me be clear that that part there, too, when Jesus, in the Great Commission, of all nations, doesn't have to be there. Jesus could say, uh, uh, all authority has been in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples. Go make disciples. But he doesn't. He tells us how to make disciples of all nations, of all people groups. Cross cultural lines and make disciples, in other words. Make disciples of the whole world. We see the same thing in Acts 1 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, and the ends of the earth. In other words, the whole world. Look at verse 2 again in 1 in John 2, verse 2. He is the propitiation for our sins. But I believe John's thinking that don't forget, and not for ours only but also for the sins of the whole world. In other words, don't forget your calling, church. Take this message, forgiveness of sins, take the gospel message to the ends of the earth, to the whole world. It has nothing to do with the main point. It really has nothing to do with the main point. It's almost like a side note. So here's what my, this is just a pure guess on my part. We know that John was a pastor of the church at Ephesus, which this letter was probably written to. So John preached all the time at this church, taught all the time. And I'm guessing he preached the Great Commission over and over and over again. And so verse 2, as he's talking to those that he loves, he reminds them, hey, don't forget what I taught you. This message is to go to the whole world. John had a heart for missions. John had a heart for missions. You might not think that just by reading First, Second John. But you get in 3rd John. Turn to 3rd John, verse 5 with me real quick. Such a short book that there's no chapters. It's just verse 5. 3rd John, verse 5. All these 1st, 2nd, 3rd, making me have a hard time saying which chapter and verse it is. 1st, 2nd, 3rd, 5th, okay. 3rd John. Verse five says this: "Behold, it is a faithful thing you do in all your effort for these brothers, strangers as they are. Who are these brothers? Well, these brothers are missionaries. They're people that are going throughout the earth sharing the gospels, and they're strangers to the to the people that Jesus er, that uh, John was talking to here. But look what it says um, uh, in verse six: who testify." to your love before the church. In other words, these missionaries weren't known by the people that John's writing this letter to, but they took care of them in such a way that when they went on with their mission, they stopped by other churches and said, "Hey, that church really took care of us." This is what John says. You will do well to send them on their journey in the manner worthy of God. Verse 7. For they have gone out for the sake of the name, Jesus, of course, accepting nothing from the Gentiles, right, those people groups around the world. Verse 8, therefore we ought, that's a command, ought, should, we should do this. Therefore we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. I love that he calls them workers, right? We could be fellow workers with them, but they're workers. We're changing the names from missionaries to workers. It's biblical. That's our calling as a church. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we may may be fellow workers for the truth. I think this is why John, in 1 John 2, 2, is reminding the church of their mission. He is a propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. In other words, take this gospel message outside of these four walls. Take this gospel message outside of this nation, to the ends of the earth. That's your calling, church. Man, aren't those two deep, beautiful verses? Let me just read them again real quick. First John two one, my little children, I am writing these sayings to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is a propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. In other words, the ends of the earth. I wanted to end today on a note of worship. Not with a song. But I wanted to read a song today. And the truth that is just beautiful in this song. Turn with me to Revelations chapter 5 verse 6. Revelations chapter 5 verse 6. And I remind you who wrote Revelation. And this is John. And the same person that wrote those two verses. And listen to what he says in, in ver- chapter 5 verse 6. And between the throne and the four living creatures, and among the elders, I saw a lamb. And just a few verses before, Jesus is called the the lion of Judah. But when, when John sees this vision, he doesn't see a lion. He sees a lamb. I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. Jesus is the propitiation of our sins. He was slain. He satisfied God's wrath. In other words, skip down to verse 8. And when he, this lamb, Jesus, and when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the, the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp, and and golden bowls full of instants, which are the which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. Right? Jesus was the propitiation. And by your blood you have ransomed people for God, not every single person. Not even the majority of people that have lived, but people from every tribe and nation and people, tribe, nation, and people, tribe, language, people, and nation. In other words, every people group, the whole world. And you have made them a kingdom and priest to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. I love this line. I'm just going to read it one more time. Your blood, you ransom people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Let's pray this morning. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord God, I pray for our church, Lord, Country Oaks, god I, I pray for us to forgive us, Lord, where we we lose sight, Lord, and I know we do this daily, Lord, but where we lose sight of our of our commission Lord, of our of our calling as a church to reach the nations it looks clear in your scripture, Lord, that every single people group, there will be someone represented from every single people group worshiping you for eternity, and that is beautiful, Lord the diversity of different languages different cultures coming together with one common belief one common love lord help us as a church to 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 be great commission minded lord to, to, to take the gospel outside of these four walls, meaning meaning our neighbors, Lord, the, our family members, those that we, we know at the gym, those that we love within our town, Lord. But also meaning crossing cultural boundaries, Lord, to take the gospel to the ends of the earth, to the whole world. Help us not to forget that that is our calling. I thank you for your son. I thank you that he's the propitiation for my sins, Lord, that, that your wrath was satisfied, not on me, but on him. And that I can confidently come to the throne of grace. I can confidently come to you when I sin, Lord, knowing you'll forgive me. God, I pray that we as a church treasure these two verses, Lord, as we know that you are our advocate, you are of our propitiation, Lord, and we are called to take that message to the ends of the earth. Be with us this morning, Lord, in your son's name. Amen.